Everybody else, please take out your Bibles. You need God's Word open in front of you to make sure that my words are actually coming from God's Word. So turn back to John chapter 7, verses 19 through 31 today. John 7, 19 through 31. You can find it on page 893 in the Pew Bible. Last week we considered the teaching of the Christ. In John 7, Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the last time during the Feast of Booths. And in verse 14, he goes up to the temple and he begins teaching. Jesus Christ is a teacher, which should astound us. Because as John has been making clear, this Jesus is also Lord. He, one, one, is God himself. He, one, three, is the creator of all. And yet here he is, the creator, Lord God of all, teaching. That's, that's pretty amazing. Kings and dictators and presidents and, and people of great power don't usually waste their time teaching the masses. Jesus, the person of absolute power, teaches the masses. Again, right, how, how kind and compassionate is this Christ? And as God himself, the word of God, full of grace and truth, he had to be the greatest teacher who ever lived. We'll read next week in verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man. Jesus was the best teacher ever. I mentioned last week that Melissa in her former life was a great teacher. What was the response of her students to her as a great teacher? They loved her. They listened to her. They obeyed her. They adored her. I don't know about you, but I, I generally respond similarly to great teaching. Think back. Right? Have you had any good or great teachers? How did you respond to those good teachers? Probably pretty positively. Right? That's what we do with good teachers. We listen to them. We appreciate them. I was uh, greatly blessed in the providence of God, unsure of what I was doing in 2008. I stumbled into my first seminary class and sat down under the teaching of Dr. David W. Jones. I would never be the same. Uh, he helped me to grow in my understanding and love of the doctrines of grace. I got my love of the law from Dr. Jones, and he helped me to love Jesus more. He was a great teacher, and so I took every class he taught. He became my mentor. He became my Ph.D. advisor. He was a great teacher, and so I responded positively to both he and his teaching. I loved him. I listened to him. I followed him. Jesus was the greatest teacher with the greatest teaching. And yet, we are seeing that the response to him is not at all what we would expect. The response has not been acceptance, but rejection. Not affirmation, but opposition. Not love, but hate. Remember, this whole section is about the escalating conflict and growing opposition to Christ. And we're trying to better understand why that is. And we're trying to better understand why our response to Christ and his teaching is often so apathetic and lackluster. If he is so great, why are we often so eh? If his teaching is so good, why are we often so bored and so unimpressed and so unengaged? And so as we are confronted again this morning with Christ and his teaching, I want us to consider our response to Christ as we look at the crowd's response to Christ. Again, this is a harder text to pin down. It's, it's a harder text to kind of tie together, but we know that it's here for a reason. This is not just a historical record of Jesus' confrontation with the crowd, but it is God's inspired, living, and active word given for us ordained by God for you to hear on this very day. And so, if everything is determined by our response to Christ, if eternal life or eternal death is dependent on our response to Christ, then this word is here in part to help us consider how we ourselves have actually responded to Christ in light of how the crowd here responds to Christ. How have you responded to the Lord Jesus Christ? Again, I'm not really asking how you say you've responded to Christ, but how have you actually responded to Christ? How has he actually affected your life, your soul? What do your thoughts, your feelings, your decisions reveal about your response to Christ? Do you know him? 
Do you love him? Do you enjoy him? Jesus is going to tell us in verse 24 to judge with right judgment. I want each of us to do that this morning with our own personal response to Christ. How have you responded to the Christ who is life? And how can you tell? Well, I'm going to draw out three tests from this text that can help us to better understand our eternally important response to Christ. How can you judge your response to Christ? Three tests. Number one, consider your obedience to God's law. Consider your obedience to God's law. Number two, consider your knowledge of God's son. And then number three, consider your trust in God's sovereignty. We're going to look at our obedience, our knowledge, our trust. One thing that this text makes very clear is that you cannot be neutral with respect to Christ. We saw Thursday that there are only two categories of people, only two groups, only two identities, those of the flesh and those of the spirit. One is death and one is life. Everyone is either in one or the other. There is no third, middle category. And the only difference is Christ and your response to Christ. So let's consider the one who is life together. Let me read John chapter 7. I actually want to start reading in verse 14 just to help us set the stage and ease in to our text. But we're going to focus on 19 through 31. But I'll pick up reading John 7 verse 14. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Let's stop there and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the graciousness that is evident in your um, kindness to reveal yourself to us. We thank you that you have given us this book. We thank you that these words are inspired by your spirit and are living and active and are able to reveal you to us, are able to mediate your presence to us, your grace, your comfort, your conviction. Father, we ask that you would now work through your word. Father, as I now attempt to do something that in my own power I am utterly incapable of doing, I ask that your spirit would work through your word. Please help the preaching of your word. Father, please help the hearing of your word. It is hard to sit and to listen and to focus and to not be distracted. Father, please help all of us to hear your word. And we pray that your spirit would apply that word to our hearts. We pray that you would give us um, fuller, richer knowledge of Jesus Christ that would grow us in our love and appreciation for Jesus Christ. Father, work now through your word for your glory and our good. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, consider your obedience to God's law. We're jumping right into the middle 
of Jesus' discourse where we left it last week. Remember, we were considering why the world misunderstands the Christ. They're demonstrating that they just don't get it. They just don't get him. The God of all glory, the greatest teacher ever. And they can't see it. They can't understand. Why? Well, we looked primarily at verses 17 and 18, and we saw that the world misunderstands the teaching of Christ because it is unwilling to do God's will and because it is insistent on seeking its own glory. And so this just logically makes sense. How would someone dead set against obeying God and his word understand a teaching that is all about God and his word? How would someone dead set on seeking their own glory understand a teaching that is all about God's glory? They wouldn't. They couldn't. And so we looked at how there is a, a moral, volitional component to understanding. In refusing to be willing to do God's will, in refusing to obey God's law, the world renders itself unable to understand Christ and his teaching and to respond to him rightly. And Jesus says much of the same in verse 19. So look at verse 19. Here's where we begin. He says, well, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? And ouch! Consider those words in context. Here is Christ with hard words. Again, confrontational, controversial. Jesus has just told the Jews, the ones blessed with and entrusted with God's law, the ones supposedly all about God's law, that none of them keeps the law. That would have been hugely insulting. But if correct, hugely revealing. They claim to love the law. They claim to keep the law. But Christ says that they don't. And that's big. This is why they are opposed to him. This is why they cannot even begin to grasp and, and understand him. Why is that? Well, because he is all about the law. And the law is all about him. Your response to the Lord is revealed in large part by your obedience to his law. And so I want you to consider that obedience to that law. But first, we need to clear up a couple of things. We need to clear up the constant confusion that often plagues the, the evangelical world when it comes to the law of God. I commend to you Peter's Sunday School from, from last week on the law. I, I commend to you chapter 19 of the 1689. But quickly, so many of our conversations and assumptions concerning the law begin from a position of just kind of this negative attitude toward that law. But... A negative attitude toward God's law could not be more contradictory to the Scripture's attitude toward God's law. Romans 7.12, the law is holy, and it is righteous, and it is good. So always start there. It is God's law. And so, you cannot neglect the law without neglecting the lawgiver. You cannot disregard the law without disregarding the lawgiver. Why not? Because that law is not just some arbitrary set of rules. Sometimes we make up arbitrary rules for our kids that don't really kind of matter or don't really mean anything. Um, that, that's not what's happening here. This law, God's law, the moral law, is a perfect reflection and revelation of his heart and character, which is perfect and good. And so God's law commands and commends the behavior that is good and that this good God delights in. And if it is good... And a reflection of him in his goodness, well, then it must also be for our good. You just imagine how good our culture would be if no one was murdering, right? If no one was committing adultery or stealing or lying or coveting. We can't even begin to imagine that because those things so characterize our world. But it would be wonderful. It would be a world characterized by love. For that is what the law is all about. We tend today to pit love and law against each other. Christ defines the one with the other. The Mosaic law consists of 16, uh, 613 different laws. Those are then summarized by the ten words or the ten commandments. And then Jesus boils all of that down further into two laws. The greatest Commandments, the summary commandments of that whole good law. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Paul says something similar, Romans 13, 10. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Is this our perspective of the law? That it is good, inherently, objectively good. That it is all about love, love of God, and love of neighbor. Jesus is very clear from the beginning of his ministry in Matthew 5 that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It's his law. Right? It's all about him. He is God, and if the law is a revelation of the heart and character of God, well, then the law is a revelation of the heart and character of Christ. But we can get confused if we're not careful. We can hear Paul seem to speak negatively sometimes about the law, and then we can hear not very careful pastors and theologians misunderstand that and then run with that, and then they themselves speak very negatively about God's law. And so we can start to kind of just assume, well, hey, you know, Maybe the law is a problem. Faith and grace, good. Law, bad. No. Jesus here is rebuking the crowd for not keeping the law. Because keeping the law is good. It's not all that complicated. Right? We know that we do not and cannot keep the law to be saved. Salvation is by grace and grace alone. It is God's work for us, not our work for him. When Paul speaks negatively about the law, that's what he's talking about. But that's not a problem with the law. That's a problem with us. That's a problem with our sin and us, our inability to keep that good law. Remember at the very beginning, God gave his good law to Adam and told him to keep it and live. He did not. He failed. He fell. And we fell in him. And we fell in our sin. And in our sin, we rendered ourselves incapable of keeping God's good law, which offered life as the reflection and revelation of the God who is life. And so the amazing news of the gospel is not that God then does away with the law. Ah, you know, that didn't work. Sorry about that. Let me, let me try something else here. No. The amazing news of the gospel, as we saw on Thursday, is that God now then comes in and does what the law could not do. What we could not do, not by canceling the law, but by sending his son to keep the law for us as our substitute in our place by his life, by sending Christ, his son, to pay the penalty for failing to keep the law for us in our place by his death. The grace of God is the Christ of God keeping the law of God for the salvation of the people of God. It's not no law. It's law kept for us by Christ. It's law fulfilled, debt paid, salvation given, so that we can now gladly and willingly keep that law. Not for salvation, but from salvation. And so, you can judge your response to Christ in part by considering your obedience to God's good law. It's pretty simple. God's people obey God's law. There's nothing legalistic about that. There's nothing anti-gospel about that. John will say later in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, yes, love, that we keep his commandments. And, oh, good news, his commandments are not burdensome. Love, keeping commandments, they go together. And, and they're not burdensome. They're, they're good, inherently designed and given for your good. Jesus, coming up in John 14, Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. See how it connects? Love and law, they go together. Jesus seems to think this is important. Seven verses later, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, <clears throat> he will keep my word and my father will love him. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. All right, Jesus, we... We get it. We get it. We, we got you, Jesus. 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. There's a little part of us who are like, ah, that sounds a little bit legalistic, Jesus. Being a little legalistic there, a savior of the world. No, Jesus has no problem encouraging our obedience to his law. And why would he? It's a good law. 
designed for our good. And since he loves us, and he knows that his good love is all about, and so since he knows that his good law is all about his love for us and our love for him, he wants us to be blessed. He wants us to abide in him, and the law is central to that. And so consider your opinion of God's law, and consider your obedience to God's law. You need to reject any sense that you keep it to earn God's favor. You need to reject any sense that you can impress God or that you can put God in your debt by your law keeping. But if you have experienced his grace, if you have been saved by his grace, then you will desire to do his will. And you will begin to delight in obeying his law. For God's good will, verse 17, is revealed in God's good law, verse 19. And as David says in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. That's that's the cry of all of those who are Christ. I delight to do your will. Your will is revealed to me in your law. And that law, by your grace, is in my heart. And I, by your spirit, desire to keep it and can keep it because of your grace. And so your response to God's Christ is revealed in large part by your obedience to God's law. We're not talking about perfection. You know me. (laughs) I know you. Uh, We are far from perfection. I I stumble. I I struggle. But by the grace of God, I can see a new principle of life within me. I can see a new and growing, sometimes very slowly, but at least a slightly growing affection for the holiness that is revealed in God's Law. I can look back over the last 15 years of my life and trace progress, but at least some sort of progress and growth by the grace of God. That's testimony to what he's doing in my life. And it reflects itself in my desire, however imperfectly, to obey him and to keep his law and to see its goodness. The crowd's response was so negative to Christ and his teaching because they refused to submit to and obey God's law. They are opposed to him because they will not obey his law. So, number one, you need to consider your obedience to God's law. What is that saying about your response to Christ? Point number two, consider your knowledge of God's Son. This one is pretty obvious. Your response to Christ must be largely dependent Upon your knowledge of Christ. But where is that coming from in the text? Well, go back to the text. We didn't read the end of verse 19. Go back to verse 19. Jesus tells them that they don't keep God's law. And then he finishes with a flurry. Why do you seek to kill me? Again, pretty strong. Here's a pretty clear and obvious example of not obeying God's law. The sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And here they are trying to murder him. But are they? Look at their response in verse 20. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Now, you have a demon is probably not a literal accusation of demon possession here. It does seem on another occasion they do that. But this is probably here just like, would be like us saying today, like, hey, you're insane. You're crazy, Jesus. And then what about this whole, like, the who is seeking to kill you thing? It could be genuine. There's some debate over this. There could be pilgrims in the crowd from outside of Jerusalem, and they they genuinely don't really know kind of what's going on. Again, But I lean towards, it seems that the text indicates otherwise. The text seems to be trying to communicate that it is common knowledge what was going on here. In verse 13, we just read that no one will speak openly of Jesus for fear of the religious authorities. Verse 1 set the stage for this whole section telling us that the Jews... We're seeking to kill him. And in just a few verses, verse 25, some in the crowd will say, well, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? So it wasn't a secret. The people likely know, further indicating their culpability here, further indicating the absurdity of their response to Christ. They are outright denying that anyone is seeking to kill Christ when everyone knows that they are seeking to kill Christ. And so in verse 21, Jesus answers them, Where's he going here? I did one work, and you all marvel at it. What's he he talking about? Well, Jesus is going back to John chapter 5. Jesus is going back to the last time he was in Jerusalem and the reason why he had to leave Jerusalem. 
Remember, last time he was there was where this plot against his life originated. Remember, he very intentionally and confrontationally healed a man on the Sabbath to provoke controversy with the religious authorities. And we saw back in 518 that it was then that they began seeking to kill him because they thought he was breaking the Sabbath and because he was making himself equal to God. And Jesus is bringing that back up here. He is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He is bringing up Moses again. Remember, they're Moses. They claim to obey the law. They claim to revere and follow Moses. Well, Jesus said back in 545 that it will be Moses himself who accuses them. Because Moses was writing ultimately about Jesus. And here Jesus again points out that they do not actually follow the law and the Moses that they claim to follow. Jesus is in trouble simply because he healed a man on the Sabbath. And so in verse 22 of chapter 7, he points out that though they themselves will circumcise a child on the Sabbath, you're required to circumcise a child on the eighth day after he was born. So if that eighth day falls on a Sabbath, they rightly would circumcise that child on the Sabbath, and they weren't breaking the law. And so logically then, verse 23, here's the argument from the lesser to the greater. If it's right to administer this ceremonial healing of only one part of the body, how is it not right to administer an actual healing of the whole body on the Sabbath? They don't understand God's law. They don't understand the Sabbath. They don't understand the point of the Sabbath. Side note. We don't understand the Sabbath. We don't understand the point of the Sabbath. I strongly encourage you to come to Sunday school next week because we're going to talk about the Sabbath. Listen, what if? What if the Sabbath is actually part of God's abiding moral law? What if it's actually one of the Ten Commandments? What if we're actually commanded to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy? And consider that in light of our previous point. You can judge your response to Christ in part by your obedience to God's law. What about the Sabbath? Jesus teaches a lot about the Sabbath. I think it's intentional that a lot of his controversies and a lot of his conflicts and a lot of his teaching happen on and around the Sabbath. Jesus is correcting their misunderstanding and misuse of the Sabbath. He is correcting their tendency to load it up with do's and don'ts and rules and regulations. Whatever we do, we can't do that. So we need to be careful about that from the outset. But he does not do away with the Sabbath. Have we done away with something that Christ has not done away with? If so, that's not good. Come to Sunday school next week and pray for me, please. But one of the things that we see clearly here concerning the Sabbath is that it is good and that it is a day for doing good. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 12, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That's what Christ has done. And that's what they're mad at him for. So the Sabbath is for doing good, which is good. And the Sabbath, just by nature of the name, what the word means, is about rest, which is good. Rest is my favorite thing. Maybe, and this is fair, I'm really wrestling with this right now. Maybe our problem is that we do not find restful that which God tells us we should find restful. Maybe we do not really enjoy that which God tells us we should enjoy. Let's begin to sort that out together uh, next week and, and pray for that. Come to Sunday school and let's, let's start to talk about the Sabbath. But for now, look at verse 24. I'm drawing our second point. Consider your knowledge of God's Son from here. Verse 24. Jesus says, Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. Again, this, this is an important general principle for us to get. Right, maybe the Bible verse today that the world most knows and loves and uses is Matthew 7.1. Right? Judge not. Everybody knows that verse and, and uses uh, that verse. Don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? We, we plaster it on our gyms, right? Judgment-free zone. Judge, judge not. But here Jesus says, judge. <laughs> Jesus is condemning one kind of judgment and commending another kind. Of judgment. Judgment is good. Judgment is necessary. You cannot not judge. What does it mean to judge? We can ultimately, like, as basic as possible, it simply means to decide. Uh, originally, the word in the Greek meant to separate. 
the Greek poet Homer, for example, uses this same word, krino, uh, to refer to the separating out of the wheat from the chaff. There's the good part, there's the bad part. To get the good part, you've got to separate it out. That's this word. And it came to metaphorically mean to, to separate out, to distinguish, to, to make a distinction. And we all have to do that all of the time. Judge. But judge with right judgment. Judge wisely. Judge biblically, point number one, judge according to the standard of God's word and God's law. It's not judgmental to judge homosexuality to be a sin. It's not judgmental to judge any sexual immorality to be a sin. Because God's word clearly says these things. And so we are to judge with right judgment in accordance with God's word and his law. You see, you have to judge. You have to exercise moral discernment. You have to distinguish. You have to determine right from wrong. This is right. This is wrong. This is good. This is bad. This is lawful. This is sinful. So the only question is, is upon what standard do you make those judgments? The world's standards, your own personal preference, or, or God's word? But you know, with all that said, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Right? I don't think that's really what Jesus is talking about. I think in verse 24, he's specifically talking about himself. He is talking about their judgment of him. They have been judging him by appearance. In verse 15, it appears to them that Jesus has no right to teach and claim authority because he's never studied under a rabbi. In verse 27, it appears to them that they know where Jesus comes from. They assume that they know how the Messiah will come. There was a general assumption that the Messiah was just going to kind of like burst onto the scene in a grand and glorious fashion and overthrow the Romans and, and reestablish the grand and glorious kingdom of Israel. But this guy, he's just a carpenter. He's teaching. He's from Nazareth. We know his family. This can't be the Christ. And so the crowd that just said, who is seeking to kill you, now in verse 30, was seeking to arrest him. And so they proved that they had no true knowledge of God's son. Their response to Christ is revealed in the lack of knowledge of God's son. Jesus is condemning them for judging him based upon appearance, based upon their assumptions, and not upon the truth and true knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And so consider your knowledge of God's son. Do you judge him? Not by appearance, not by what you want him to be or do, but with right judgment, according to his revelation of himself in his word. How well do you know the Son of God? It's a pretty simple and basic and yet could be disturbing fact. Right? We, we know what we love. And by that I mean we, we know about what we love. We give ourselves and our time and our attention to knowing the things that we love. Right? We, we seek to know it better and better. Most of you probably can know me somewhat well just from listening to me preach. We talk about what we love. You can tell that I love my family because I talk a lot about my family. I thought the baby was coming this week. Melissa lied to me and the baby hasn't come yet and I'm frustrated. So pray that the baby will come. So I love my family and so I talk about it. You can probably tell that I love food because I talk a lot about food. You can probably tell that I love reading because I talk about reading a lot. I have two books here that I'm about to talk about. You can probably tell that I love running because I talk about running. It's simple. And related to that, those things that I love, well, I pursue them and I seek to know them. As I've really fallen in love with running, Anthony and Baining's fault. Uh, for me, that, that love manifests itself in a desire to know everything that I can about it. And for me, that looks like reading books. I've read dozens of books about running this last year. I finished one yesterday. I will start one tomorrow. The one I finished yesterday provided me the opening illustration for Sabbath Sunday School next week. So you're welcome. Come. Don't miss it. But the point is that because I love it, I want to know about it. And so I take steps to do that. Does your professed love for Jesus manifest itself in any way, however imperfectly, in a desire to know more about him? To know him? And for you to, to grow in your knowledge of him, leading to your growing in your love for him. Listen, this is just simply what it means to be a Christian. Without this, listen, without this, you simply are not a Christian. 
Christians are not those who have professed some truths about Jesus. Christians are not those who sometimes go to church occasionally. Christians are those who, by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, have been made one with Christ himself, really and intimately united with Christ. They are in him, and he is in them. And do you know what that does? Something, at least. It has to do something. Salvation from an eternity of hell, being indwelt by the Spirit of God himself. Surely we understand that it has to make some sort of difference in our lives. It should make a remarkable, undeniable difference in our lives. God himself has saved us. God himself has indwelt us, taken up residence in our hearts. God himself has adopted us and made us his children. Amazing grace. Do you desire to know anything about that? Honestly, do you desire to know anything about the Son of God? I had another point here that I had to cut for time's sake, but the two were connected. But again, related to that, I also want you to briefly consider your knowledge of God the Father. They're obviously connected. Look at what Jesus says to them in verse 28. Again, as he taught them in the temple. Look at what he says. You know me, and you know where I come from. I think he's being sarcastic there. I think. Uh, I won't won't hold me to that. So I think he's saying, okay, you think that you know me. You, You claim to know me by appearance, at least, based upon verse 24. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him... You do not know. Again, that's about as insulting of a thing that he could have said to the Jews. You do not know God. We are loath to ever even question or consider, like, hey, does this person actually know the Lord? Jesus is doing that constantly. You do not know God. And he's going to say the same thing in chapter 8, verse 19. He says, you know neither me nor my Father. In hard words, but potentially life-saving words. Their failure to recognize the Son was rooted in their failure first to actually know the Father. They didn't know God. So they obviously then didn't know God's Son. 729, Jesus continues, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Consider your knowledge of the Father, a knowledge that is mediated only through the Son. None of us knew him. No one knows him except for the Son. And the one to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You cannot have knowledge of the Father without knowledge of the Son. You cannot have knowledge of the Son without knowledge of the Father. But, but do you know God? For 17.3, this is eternal life. Knowing God and Jesus Christ. And everything that I just said about pursuing knowledge of what we love applies here. Are we pursuing and growing in your knowledge of God as Father? I use this a lot, but I cannot help but come back to it again and again. Uh, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. I'm going to keep bringing it up every couple months until all of you have read it because it was so impactful uh, for me. Uh, it's, just, it's been very challenging for me and helpful, and it sits on my desk, and I reference it all the time. And he writes brilliantly at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, what were we made for to know God? What aim should we set ourselves in life to know God? What is the eternal life that God gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. How would you answer that question? That question makes me a little bit uncomfortable. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, more delight, more contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Do we really believe that the best thing in life, literally, the thing that will bring you more joy and delight than, and contentment than anything else you're pursuing is knowledge of God. Do you really believe that you are to set the aim of the whole of your life at the knowledge of God? Your knowledge of God the Father and God the Son, your desire for knowledge of God the Father and God the Son, and then you're actually doing something with that desire, reveals much about your response to Christ. Uh, The crowd did not know the Father or the Son. And so they obviously then responded in opposition, hostility, and hatred to Christ. And then they sought to arrest him, knowing that the religious authorities were seeking to kill him. So again, they're seeking to kill him. But, point number three. Let's close with sovereignty again. Consider your trust 
in God's sovereignty. They were seeking to arrest him. Verse 30. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Oh, I love that verse. Christian, you can find great comfort in that verse. Why? Because it is a demonstration of one of the most comforting truths in Scripture. God is sovereign. What does that mean? It means that God rules and reigns. It means that he has all power and all authority, and he exercises both over all things. Again, it simply means that God is in control of all things. And listen, there's, I, I said this a few weeks ago, there's no more important question than that. Is God actually in control? Every other question depends upon that question. Everything depends upon his power and his sovereignty. God's promises, God's grace, our salvation are only as good as God's sovereignty. What, what good are his promises if he does not have the power and authority to carry them out? Those promises are only guaranteed for you. Your future is only guaranteed if he has absolute control and if he is absolutely sovereign. And here we see again, as we see throughout the scriptures, that he is absolutely sovereign. And that is great news for you. They want to arrest Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. But no one even laid a hand on him. Why not? Because Jesus was super quick. Did Jesus literally Jesus juke them, right? And like get out of the way and they couldn't catch him because he's so sneaky and fast? No, obviously not. It's because God is sovereign. It's because God had a specific plan for Jesus. A specific plan for every moment of the entire life of Jesus. Guess what? He also has a specific plan for you and for every moment of your entire life. But for Jesus, that plan was all building toward and culminating in his death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And that death was going to happen exactly how God determined it and exactly when God determined. And since that win was not now, verse 30, no one laid a hand on it. A.W. Pink writes, Until God's foreordained hour struck and the incarnate Son bowed to his Father's good pleasure, he was immortal. Christian, do you understand that no one can lay a hand on you apart from God's will? Do you know that nothing can happen to you? Nothing, literally nothing, apart from God's will. Do you know that until God's foreordained hour and his good pleasure, you're immortal? Peter has shared with us before about the Scottish missionary, John Patton. Uh, Patton desired to go and minister to unreached people in the islands of the South Pacific. And one of the famous lines from, from his story is some older man in Scotland trying to convince him not to go, saying, you will be eaten by cannibals. Uh, it was not a Scottish accent. I, don't, I can't do it. Um, but you'll be eaten by cannibals. And he almost was. Like, go read Patton's story. It's, it's wild. It's, it's full of danger. But Patton writes, in the midst of all this, trying to escape one of the islands, surrounded literally by angry natives uh, seeking to kill him, he writes this, looking back. He says, I realized that I was immortal till my master's work was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken, that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, nor a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow, or a killing stone the fingers, without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all the power in heaven and on earth. And what confidence and comfort he found in the sovereignty of God in the worst of all possible circumstances. But, you may be thinking, Patton was spared. He got off that island. But, verse 30, no one laid a hand on Christ. Here, it's easy to take comfort in God's sovereignty when things go well. But what about when they don't? Does God's sovereignty still apply to those situations? Is God's sovereignty still a comfort in those situations? And here's the test. Here's what you must consider. It is easy to delight in the sovereignty of God when everything's going your way. But how do you respond to God's sovereignty when they're not? Listen, God does have a wonderful plan for your life. And that plan is conformity to the image of his son. That plan is to prepare you and get you to glory. And so sometimes 
That wonderful plan for your life involves much difficulty and much suffering, losses, disappointments, things not going as you planned, you not getting what you want. What do you think of the sovereignty of God then? Because yes, listen, no one laid a hand on Christ here, but they very much would about six months later. They would lay their hands on him, and then they would drive some nails into his hands, all according to God's sovereign and perfect plan. Can you, like Christ the night before that, even in times of difficulty, cry out, not my will, but yours be done? We talked about last week in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Can you actually pray that? Again, it's one of the most dangerous prayers there is. Can you honestly say that? Can you rest and delight in God's absolute sovereignty and particular plan for your life, even when things are hard and not going as you would prefer? Can you trust that maybe he knows better? Can you trust maybe that he is good and that he's actually always out and always acting perfectly for your good, as he has specifically said? Uh, Some of the men... I've been meeting on Saturday mornings, and I'm excited because we're starting uh, John Flavel's book, uh, Keeping the Heart, uh, this week. Uh, Men, if you haven't been coming, grab a book and come join us on on Saturday. This would be a good place to start. I can't wait to consider Flavel's counsel for keeping the heart in difficult times. It kind of really messed with me years ago when I I read it. Uh, Flavel writes this. He says, it may support your heart to consider that in these troubles, God is performing that work in which your soul would rejoice if you could see the design of it. If you could but see how God, in his secret counsel, has exactly laid out the whole plan of your salvation, even to the smallest means and circumstances, could you but discern the admirable harmony of divine dispensations, their mutual relations, together with the general respect they all have to the last end, Had you the freedom to make your own choice, you would, of all conditions in the world, choose those in which you are now in. That was mind-blowing for me. And it it involved much humbling and much, much repenting. Did you catch what Flavel just said there? He's saying, he's basically boiling it. He's saying, if God is really perfectly sovereign, and if he is actually perfectly good, and if he is actually perfectly working all things together for your good... And he is. And if you could actually step back from his perspective, if you could see the big whole picture, see exactly what he is doing, and see what glorious result he was working towards, if you could see that, then you would pick for yourself the exact circumstances in which you find yourself in right now. Because those are the exact circumstances that he has chosen for you right now. And he does not make mistakes. And he is sovereign. And he is good. Listen, uh, I don't think this is controversial. I hope it's helpful. Whatever you're really struggling with right now, whatever circumstance you hate, whatever you're really mad about or or hurt about right now, and if all this is true, God specifically ordained those circumstances for you right now. What are you going to do with that? Honestly, can you, will you trust him? It's easy to affirm sovereignty when everything's going well. What if it was just as helpful to affirm it when everything's not? What if things aren't out of his control? What if Satan's not winning and out to get me? What if I'm not messing everything up? What if God is working perfectly for my perfect good? Again, that's going to require some difficult things. You know why? Because I'm a wretch and I'm a mess. And so he's got to do some stuff with my heart. And he's got to bring to bear uh, trial and difficulty. You get stronger in the gym by breaking down your muscles and by working yourself and exhausting yourself. What if I can only get stronger in my faith by God working some of that stuff out, breaking down my muscles, revealing the sin that is in my heart through the difficult circumstances, leading me to repent and believe and to trust in him? What if he's actually working everything perfectly for my good? Can I trust him? Can you trust him? When things are terrible, can you trust that he's sovereign and good? Judge your response to Christ by your trust in God's absolute sovereignty. He is in control. It just cannot be denied from Scripture. And he is good. It just cannot be denied from Scripture. 
And he is out for your good. And that cannot be denied from Scripture. And so whatever it is right now that you're facing, read it through those through truths. He's in control. He's good. He's committed to working it all for your good. And so, how have you responded to Christ? Judge yourself with right judgment. Judge yourself in accordance with God's word. Judge yourself in light of how glorious and good the Christ revealed in these words is. I know that my response to him falls woefully short. And what he's doing, because he's gracious, is he's revealing that to me. Right? He's holding up the mirror and saying, you thought you were all right. Let me show you. Let me show you what you're really like. And oh, by the way, I love you. And I'm committed to your good. I know you perfectly. I know you better than you know you. And I still love you. And I'm going to bring you to glory. You see, that's what changes me. That's what gives me the desire to follow him and to seek him and to know him. That's what gives me the desire to trust him when everything's falling apart. Yet I know that I don't know him yet as I should. I hate that I don't yet love him as I should. But by his grace, as I continually come to the scriptures, as I'm challenged and blessed and edified uh, by you all, as I'm challenged and blessed by my wife and by my kids, as I read of Christ and I see his faithfulness, the spirit works to draw me ever closer to him. Even though I'm stubborn, even though sometimes it's really, really slow. But because I know that he's doing that, I at least desire to more pursue the obedience and the knowledge and the trust in him. Again, the Christ that I see here is worth my entire person. He is worth my entire life. You will find no one else like this Christ. To whom shall we go? Remember the end of the last chapter. There's nothing else for you. There's no one else but this Christ. And so I see by the grace of God that he is life, and I want to more and more find my life and live my life in him and for him. And so consider your response to Christ. If you're anything like me, it's not what it should be. And then cry out to him for grace and mercy. Cry out to him in light of what we just read of him in Psalm 103. Oh, that he's merciful and gracious that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Uh, he does not deal with me according to my sins. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgression from me. As a father shows compassion to his children, so he perfectly shows compassion to us. He delights to give grace and mercy uh, to his children. So cry out to him and find great joy um, in his kindness and his patience. Let's stop. Let's pray. Uh, let's ask him uh, to work in our hearts now. Father, my work is done. Father, my work is worthless without your work. And so we ask now, by your grace, as you have promised to us that your word does not return to you void, as you have promised to us that your word is living and active, we ask now that you would do those things that you have promised. We ask now that you would work in our hearts through your word. Father, I would wager that every single one of us in this room is aware that our responses to your Christ fall woefully short of, of the glory and the grace and the beauty of who he is. Father, we thank you that you know that. We thank you that you knew that. We thank you that you love us in spite of that. Father, I pray that that love, even in light of our sinfulness, would compel us, Father, to seek you and to pursue you, would be the reason uh, that we desire to know you more would be the foundation for our growing love for you. Father, we love because you have first loved us, and you have loved us perfectly and fully and finally and faithfully in Christ. So, Father, consume us with that love. Comfort us with that love. Encourage us with that love. And then we pray and ask that you would help our response to your Christ more and more match how good and gracious and kind you have been to us. Father, help us now, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen.